Good morning. We're we'll reading from Galatians 5. Same scripture we read last Sunday. I was thinking about repetition and the benefits and also the non benefits of that. The benefits is you can recognize the key words. The not so good benefits are you your mind relaxes. So hopefully God's spirit can refresh and make alive what we read again. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I Paul say to you that if you accept circumcision Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the fence of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called no freedom to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Our text this morning, thank you, 
begins at Romans 13, 8. It's Romans 13, 8 through 15, 7. And yes, that is a lengthy text. Uh, it spans chapters, parts of chapters 13, 14, and 15. And I'm looking around for signs of alarm, wondering about this fellowship meal happening afterward. Uh, but as I know Calvary, most of our stuff is in crockpots. Uh, and I think we have a straight line from the, from the mic here down to the kitchen uh, and so kitchen staff, I think let's just plan on 1 o'clock, uh, and everything should actually, they can't see me grinning here. So kitchen staff, if you're hearing this, let's not plan on 1 o'clock. I, I chose this passage because I, I think it helps to give us a biblical foundation for the sessions we're having this afternoon. But I've also chosen the topic, Walking in Love, because I think it's a current issue for us here at Calvary like it probably is at any church. So in this passage, we'll be looking at two different kinds of issues. The first one is the clear commands of Christ. How do we respond to those? And secondly, we have debatable matters. We're going to see that there are different ways each each kind needs to be handled in a certain way, and if we get them confused, we're in trouble. So let's read here now, and I'll ask you to stand, please, uh, but we will not read the whole thing right now. So stand and let's read. Uh, I will read here, starting at Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know, that, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let's pray. Lord, this is strong meat here, and I pray that you would help us to deal faithfully with the word of the Lord Jesus. May we listen keenly, not just for our neighbors, but for ourselves. Work in us your work through the Holy Spirit to grow us to the honor of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Up to now in Romans, Paul has laid out in detail an understanding of salvation and all that God has done for us in Christ. And it's been a, a deeply theological text, Romans 1 through 11. But then in verse 12, he turns a corner and he says, I urge you, therefore, in view of the mercies of God, all that God has done for us in Christ, I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this is your service 
of worship. And so in response to all that theology, all that God has done for us, now we have a way that we must live before God in gratitude to God for his mercies to us. And so we find ourselves in that section. How do we live out this salvation? And specifically the section in Romans that we're in now, we talk about how do we live in Christian community? And so he quotes here from the Ten Commandments. And in the Ten Commandments given by God to Moses, the last five of the Ten Commandments speak specifically about how we should live in Christian community. Paul doesn't fudge at all on these commandments, but he says he insists that the commandments point to something bigger than themselves. That something bigger is love. Love, he says, is the fulfilling of the law. Well, how does this work? Well, you don't love a neighbor by killing him. That's why we've taken a position against involvement in the military. If you love your neighbors, you won't steal from them. If you really care about your neighbor, you'll be delighted when they're able to buy or build a new house. Or you're going to be delighted for her when she gets her fine new dress. Another one he mentions is adultery. This one's a little trickier in some ways because it's often accompanied by feelings of love. But it's not truly loving my neighbor. My wife is my closest neighbor. Committing adultery is not loving my closest neighbor. Nor is it truly love for the other person involved. The, the love commitment in adultery isn't to the other person, it's to myself. It's self-centered gratification through illicit sexual activity. All of the sins listed here are sins against our neighbor, which puts us into their debt. But we learn here there's only one kind of debt that we should really owe to our neighbors, and it's a debt of love. You see, Paul can't deal with these commandments without putting them into the context of something much larger than themselves. We find that these thou shalt nots are actually a signpost pointing to something bigger, higher up and further in. If I'm going to San Diego and, and I come to a bridge out sign with an arrow telling me what direction to go, I, can I have a choice I have to make. I can step on the brake and turn. But I'm going to guess there are at least some of you men here who, who know what I'm talking about when I talk about when you get to that bridge out sign, suddenly, sometimes I'm hit by this irrational desire just to step on the accelerator and see what happens. I've never tried it yet. And I think we don't do that because we know it's going to end in certain ruin. And we're not going to get to where we're actually going. And I think these commandments are a bit like that. They're a bridge out sign that warn us, if you go through here, it's going to end in certain ruin. And you're not going to end where you really ought to end, which is love. Paul then adds urgency to these commands with a metaphor of someone sleeping. I think we all know that feeling of waking up with a start and there's sunlight streaming through the window and we realize in a flash that we're late for that appointment. And so we jump up out of bed and we dash to the closet, throw on some clothes and run out the door. 
That's a bit the level of urgency that Paul is using in this metaphor, that he uses that very metaphor. And he says, you people are asleep. You are morally slumbering. You are in the night and in the dark. Morning's coming. Wake up. Put off the works of darkness and walk properly as in the daytime. He gives us then a list of what these works of darkness look like, and they're pretty raw. Orgies, often translated as carousing, refers to a drinking party that often goes into moral debauchery. Drunkenness is ceding control of our mental faculties to alcohol. Sexual immorality is sleeping with somebody who's not your spouse. Sensuality is even further. It's licentiousness. It's unrestrained sexual behavior. So this is an ugly list, but we're not done. In the same sentence, in the same breath, we have quarreling and jealousy. Quarreling. Conflict resulting from rivalry and discord. This has to do with our words. In other words, sinning with our bodies, sexual deviancy, is on par with sinning with our words, verbal deviancy. In both, a lack of love is what's at stake. Jealousy is more personal than coveting, and the Greek word has this sense of, of a strong feeling of resentment and jealousy towards someone. So let's step back now and look at these two groups of sins. And I, I ask you to ask yourself, which one alarms you? Which ones don't? Recently, People magazine ranked JMU highest among colleges for students looking for hookups. And I think it's no coincidence that JMU has also been ranked nationally in national magazines as a party school. So, do you find this alarming? If you don't find this alarming, I think Paul's words for you are, wake up. You are morally asleep. You need to walk properly as in the daytime. But what about the other two? I suggest to you that if you don't find quarreling and jealousy just as alarming, just as destructive, just as immoral as sins of alcohol and sex, then Paul's word for you is also, wake up. You are morally asleep. You need to walk properly as in the daytime. When we wake up, we put on different clothes. The answer to all these sins is not just trying harder. It's not just more effort. It comes in putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. We must put him on, wear him, have him close the way our clothes hang to us, closely. Rather than scheming ways of gratifying the desires of the flesh, the desires of the body, we must scheme ways to know Christ better, to copy his self-giving love. We discover then that these commandments that we've just looked at are protecting our neighbors, that they're about something bigger. They're protecting our relationships with our neighbors and in our community. They're a bridge out sign, a warning of danger ahead to protect us 
to protect the community, to help us love our neighbors. But we quickly find, moving into the next chapter, that not all our decisions fit into something that's as clear as commandments from the Ten Commandments. There are important decisions that we have to make, decisions of belief and action, that the Bible doesn't decree. And again, if we confuse those two areas, we're in trouble. So let's look at the second area. In the church at Rome, there were disagreements over these issues. The disagreements were not about the essentials of human relationship, such as fidelity in marriage, or loving neighbors instead of killing them. The disagreements concerned other issues, important issues, but ones where God didn't describe belief in action. Now, it would be easy, I think, to pass these off as just being minor and inconsequential issues. But they're not. These are not just questions of mere preference of you like vanilla and I like chocolate, or of supreme pizza versus meat lovers. Though I admit to you, I probably wouldn't complain if there were some kind of prohibition against meat lovers, be that as it may. Meat lovers, sorry, <laughs> let's move on from that one. These issues that we're dealing with are not trivial issues like that. They are significant issues, and the feelings run deep on those issues. The believers were asking, can I in good conscience partake of this food or drink? Are some days more sacred than others? And within the church, they were coming up with different answers. They were opposing answers. It was causing friction. The ones who could not in good conscience eat meat were passing judgment on the ones who could. They declared for God that the meat eaters were sinners. And the ones who could eat were scoffing at the sensitive consciences of the ones who abstained. They disdained them as sort of sticks in the mud who couldn't understand their Christian liberty. Well, what would be Paul's ruling? Would he declare that it was fine to eat meat? Or would he declare that no, they shouldn't eat meat? So everybody in the church at Rome, I, I imagine, is kind of holding their breath. What will be his decree? Which side will win the argument? Paul takes a surprising route that I think must have been a bit of a disappointment for everybody. Neither side wins. He finds a third way that takes everyone off guard. Everyone has to sacrifice. And, therefore, everyone wins. In the church of Jesus, they'll be able to live together in harmony, amicably, even with sharp differences of belief. How does this happen? Well, let's read here, and I will read all of Romans 14. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. 
Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in their own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living." Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on, another any, on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For your, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of, God, of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What's happening here? Well, those who believed that eating meat was wrong may have been concerned because it was meat offered to idols, or it could have had to do with Jewish laws of not eating unclean meat. At any rate, their consciences wouldn't permit them to eat this. And they may have also been conscientiously observing Jewish festival and, and, and Sabbath days. Paul bluntly calls this person one who is weak in faith. Now, let's be clear. This is not a person who is weak in Christian devotion. This is not someone who is morally weak and who's falling into sin. Rather, Paul calls him weak in faith. Well, why? It seems this is a person who is overly concerned about non-essentials. 
He elevates non-essentials and makes them a test of orthodoxy and fellowship. His faith is weak in the assurance that such things actually are permitted. Then there were the strong. The strong understood better the outworking, the consequences of the faith. Their faith was strong in the assurance that these things actually are permitted. And they were jolly well going to act in accordance with their faith. Pass the stake, honey. Now, this is a major difference. Their beliefs were different. Their actions were different. They were suspicious of each, of each other with the strong disdaining the weak and the weak condemning the strong. These sorts of conflicts are difficult, but there is a path through. And the scripture charts out that path, and it requires that we look at both our attitudes and our actions. The first half of the chapter begins with attitudes, and that's where we will begin as well. First, there's a positive attitude that we must hold, and it's in verse 1. The strong are to welcome the weak, but not... Paul hastens to add, not for the purpose of getting into arguments, not for quarreling, not for trying to convince him, just welcome him. Welcome is a stronger word than it seems. It has the idea of friendship and warm hospitality. We see this word used in Acts 28. So there we have the story of, of the shipwreck, and Paul and his company uh, get kind of washed up on an island. Well, if you're stranded on an island after being shipwrecked, one of the first questions in your mind is going to be, what's, what would the response be of the natives to this arrangement? Will they welcome me as a friend or as a tasty morsel? But on the island of Malta, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us. Whew, got through that one. It's a sort of, this is a, a warm welcome. It's a friendly welcome. It's unusual kindness. And this is the word that's used for the way the strong are to interact with the weak. And later, Paul makes it clear, actually, it's both sides for each other. They are to welcome each other. Well, this gets right to the heart of Christianity here in verse 1 where instead of putting the weak and the marginalized, sorry, the weak um, and, and marginalized at the fringes where society places them, instead, in the Christian community, we place them at the center and we surround them with love. So that's the positive. We must welcome. But then there's a negative. The strong and the weak both tend to have bad attitudes toward each other. The strong despise the weak. After all, they're weak. And the weak tend to pass judgment on the strong. So the weak believe eating meat is wrong. So they stand in for God, they ascend his judgment seat, and they pronounce the strong sinners. This is completely opposite the unusual kindness of welcoming each other. And Paul's response is sharp. He says, stop it. Don't despise your brother. Don't judge your brother. A change of attitude is called for because the current attitude is destructive. It's going to tear the church apart. 
this is hard. How, how can we hold these attitudes of warm welcome and non-judgmentalism toward those whose beliefs and actions seem so clearly wrong? And now I think we come to an important life principle, and it's this, always put the smaller in context of the larger. A single puzzle piece taken in isolation makes no sense, but put that puzzle piece in with the rest of the puzzle, the whole thing put together, and all of a sudden, you understand where it fits. And in a similar way, these attitudes that we are being called to here I don't think will make sense until we see the larger picture of what God is doing in the church and specifically the attitudes that God has toward the people in question. So why shouldn't we pass judgment on each other? There are three of these larger principles. First, we should welcome each other because God has welcomed us. Do you want to know what attitudes to hold to each other? If you do, look at the attitudes that God has toward your brother. And here in verse 3, therefore we don't disdain or pass judgment on one another because God has welcomed that person. Secondly, if we've honestly thought through the issues and really are fully convinced in our own mind, we do what we do for God. Notice that Paul does not try to minimize the differences here. He doesn't tell everybody, ah, just lighten up, take a chill pill, don't sweat the small stuff. Actually, he amps it up. He says, you need to think through these issues. Come to some conclusions. Don't just waffle in the, in the middle. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Develop some convictions on this. He says, even if your convictions differ. This becomes our way of honoring God. Whether you eat or abstain, you do it with thanksgiving to God. The one who eats thanks God for the good gift of meat. The one who doesn't eat thanks God that God is enough and he doesn't need meat. Both are thankful to God. Both either partake or abstain in honor of God. There's a very practical test of Christian discipleship for us here. Whether you are an eater or abstainer, no matter what the issue is, right? So let's get away from just meat because this is a much broader issue than that. Wherever you are, these principles apply. So if, if we're able to receive something from God in gratitude, we can then offer it back to him as our service to him. Verse 6, the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So ask yourself these questions. Can I thank God for this? Can I do this unto the Lord? So let's get just a little bit more specific with a couple of examples. Media is a big deal in our world. Think through the media that you interact with. What about 
the music that you listen to? What about your internet habits? What about the movies that you watch? Are you able, if you think through the issues, are you able to honestly say, God, this thing is a good gift from you. And I can take this thing and I can offer it back to you with thanksgiving as something that honors you. Or is it something that you'd really rather not think too carefully about? I think Paul's word for you is think it through. Don't sidestep the issues. Don't waffle. Don't stand in the middle. Think through what you're doing. Is this really something that is indeed a good gift from God? Or would you rather just sort of leave God out of the picture for a moment and then pick it up again once the movie's over? What about your spending habits? The vehicles you, you drive, the house you live in, the clothes you wear, the list goes on. Are, are those things that you're actually able to, to say, God, thank you. This is a good gift from you. I offer this back to you. Where is God? Is he in the picture? So we've looked at two of three larger principles. Let's look at the third larger principle. Why shouldn't we pass judgment or despise a brother? And that is that each of us will stand before the judgment seat of God. We will each and every one of us, no exceptions, we will stand before the judgment seat of God. We will give an account of ourselves to God. So I'm not responsible for judging a brother in the church on debatable matters. He will answer before God for what he has done. So God's got that covered, and I need to let him. We've looked now at right attitudes in the face of differences, but now in the last half of the chapter, Paul turns, he sort of swivels, and he specifically speaks to the strong because they have a particular responsibility here, and he's going to talk now about the actions that the strong need to take. So again, we begin with some negatives. First, don't put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Don't destroy the work of God. Well, how do we not do this? And he gives another negative here, and that's this. Practically speaking, that means it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Again, this is stiff language. But I think first we need to notice that Paul in no way compromises on principle. He's crystal clear in verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So he doesn't fudge on principle, but he does make some deep concessions on practice. Well, why? Is that fair? He's just said that he knows this thing isn't unclean, and yet he glibly tells the meat eater that he may need to give up meat, that very thing that he knows is not unclean, that very thing for which he thanks God and by which he honors God. How can that be? Well, it's in deference to the weaker brother who thinks it unclean. And verse 14 clarifies, it actually is unclean 
for anyone who thinks it unclean. So the same thing that for one honors God, for another is sin. There's again a larger law here, a larger law in place than the law of personal rights, and it's the law of love. If my brother is grieved by what I eat, I am no longer walking in love. It's so utterly un-American. My obligation to love my neighbor trumps my personal rights. How rough is that? So do you see what's happened? Kind of with one stroke here, Paul has put the thou shalt nots of the commandments and the debatable matters, he's put them both under one large umbrella, and it's the umbrella of love. That's been the end game all along. The Lord is teaching us how to love each other in all of life. We love each other by obeying the clear commands, but we also love each other by showing deference to each other on these debatable matters. We've looked now at the, the positive, sorry, we looked at the negatives here of, of not causing a brother to stumble, which just maybe means that we can't eat meat. The positive is in verse 19, and it's this. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And again, it's about love. It's about building the body. It's about taking the weak and the marginalized and placing them at the center of the fellowship and caring for them at personal expense. In fact, in 15.1, this is put into the language of obligation. We must bear with the failings of the weak rather than just pleasing ourselves. And this takes effort and sacrifice. That word bear with has the sense of enduring under unusually trying circumstances, helping them to carry their load. But that's exactly the kind of care for the weak, for the weak that is needed. Once again, these only make sense when we understand the larger picture of what God is up to. The brother and the church is God's handiwork, and we dare not destroy, tear down the work of God for the sake of our appetites, because the kingdom is so much larger than my appetites. The kingdom is so much larger than eating or drinking. And we must know what God is up to. Finally, here in chapter 15, we have some exhortations for everyone, for the weak and the strong alike. I'll read here chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Again, this is a difficult path. Paul doesn't just swoop in and save the day by adding a few rules about what we can and can't do. 
He doesn't pronounce one side or the other a winner. In fact, if one side wins, neither side wins. If one side wins, the church of Jesus loses. Instead, Paul brings both sides together in mutual care. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. This is a high calling. This requires relationship with each other, not avoiding one another. On debatable issues, we are called and held to a law of love, engaging in respectful conversation rather than assumptions or arguing, welcoming rather than judging. This is the way of love. Is it hard? Yes. Sacrifice? At times it's excruciating. But this is the way of Christ, who made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. This is the way of sacrificial love. And then look at the outcome. When we welcome each other with unusual kindness, the glory of God is put on display. That glory is seen when we walk in love. And I think maybe it was just too glorious to command. Paul knows that we can't actually do this. And so he turns it into prayer. And I think we too must turn it into prayer. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for a moment, in this grand vision, the us and them has disappeared. We've all been swept up together as one, with one voice, in harmony with one another, and together we glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's have a song.